In the year 2001, I was subpoenaed to serve as a witness in a court case in Los Angeles, California. It wasn't a very interesting case. Um, It was a contract dispute between a church I had previously worked for and an organization they had leased some space to. So I went, and uh, it was just like the movies. I got into the the, the witness box, the witness stand. Do you swear to tell the whole truth? The full is really nothing but the truth. And, yep, so help you God, so help me God. And uh, the lawyers began to grill me. And it was a, a fairly intimidating experience. Witness is a very biblical world word and biblical ideal. But what does that mean? This week is the second Sunday of Advent in John's Gospel. Today we are going to be introduced to the biblical ideal of what it means to be a witness. John the disciple, John chapter 1 verses 6 and 7, introduce us to a man named John the Baptist. Verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. Matthew in his gospel also makes reference to John the Baptist in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching In the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. That opening phrase in those days is a significant phrase. It speaks to a very specific period of time. When John the Baptist burst on the scene and begins preaching, he is speaking at a time in which it seemed as though for roughly 400 years, God remained silent. From the very last prophet of the Old Testament, the Italian prophet Malachi, Malachi, it was a joke, (laughs) fell flat, so I won't use it again. (laughs) From the very last prophet of the Old Testament, Malachi, until... John the Baptist began preaching, 400 years had passed in which there was no prophecy, no miracles, nothing. It seemed as though God were giving the world the silent treatment. Have you ever been given the silent treatment? It's horrible. For a fixer like me, just want to dive in and deal with it, but no, no, for 400 years... The world seemingly got a silent treatment and God's chosen people, the the Hebrews, oh, they were weary. They were weary not only from the silence, but they were weary from exploitation and oppression. Because for years, the Roman Empire had come and conquered and forced them into heavy taxation. There's a, a line from that Christmas song, Oh, Holy Night. 
which goes something like this, and a weary world rejoices. Oh, the, the world was in desperate need of rejoicing. Religiously, the people were just going through the motions. You ever feel like you're just going through the motions in your faith? And so you've got 400 years of silence, a weary world, a world simply going through the motions, and, and there's a pattern that seems to emerge, a, a cyclical pattern that has emerged century after century after century. If you've ever read or studied history, then you know that in many ways history is cyclical. It does seem to repeat itself over and over again. Neil Howe, who is a historian who wrote a book called The Fourth Turning, is here, writes that at the core of modern history lies a remarkable pattern. Over the past five or six centuries, Anglo-American societies entered into a new era, a new turning every two decades or so. At the start of each turning, people change how they feel about themselves, the culture, the nation, and the future. Turnings often come in cycles of four, and each cycle spans the length of a long human life, roughly to, roughly 80 to 100 years, a unit of time the ancients call the seculum. How argues in his book that the first turning or the first cycle of this cycle of four is always a high in which things are strong, the economy is good, there is strong national pride. Think of the time shortly after World War II in which it seemed as though America were booming and everything was going great. Then he says the second, the second turning or the second season is, is an awakening in which there is a passionate spiritual appeal, a return to morals and ethics. But then... From there, things start to change because the third turning is an unraveling of things. And the fourth turning is a full-on crisis in which everything seems to be in upheaval. And, And he argues that right now in our current time and context, we are in the midst of a crisis. I believe that John the Baptist came preaching in a fourth cycle, in the cycle of of crisis. He came preaching during a time of tumultuous political revolts. The Jews just sick and tired of the treatment and the oppression. In the midst of Judaism, a, a religious party emerged called the Zealots. And the Zealots were not afraid to resort to violence to get their message across. They were known for standing in crowds and assassinating political or religious figures they deemed corrupt by stabbing them and simply walking away. Within religion, there was all kinds of corruption. Leaders vying for power, selling out to the Romans to get what it is that they want. And so it's into this that John the Baptist emerges. I found this picture of John the Baptist. This is him uh, taken... It's what I it is what I imagine. I mean, John the Baptist is described as this wild-eyed, long-haired prophet. Oh, what do we do with John? John was not afraid to speak his mind. He even referred to the religious leaders of his day as a brood of vipers. John was a relative of of Jesus. 
He was what was called an ascetic. He, he lived with, with no pleasure, all, all spirituality. Went out into the desert, dressed in camel hair, a coarse garment that would have been a symbol of, of repentance because soft, soft clothing was for royalty. Some had the image of the prophet Elijah when they saw John the Baptist and he came with his oh-so-odd diet of locusts and wild honey. I don't know if you've ever had a locust, but I heard they're a good source of protein. Ironically, the locusts are kosher along with honey, and so John the Baptist comes in his crazy-eyed way, and he serves as a witness. Because see, back to my, back to my subpoena as a witness in that court case in Los Angeles, I had one job, one duty. I was to speak the truth of what it was that I saw and experienced. So John the Baptist comes as a witness, and his job as a witness is one of clarity and conviction, because this is what John does. John simply points people to Jesus. That's his whole job. Verse 8, he himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, the true light that gives Every, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Throughout the Bible, light serves as a metaphor for all kinds of things, but in this particular story, it serves as a metaphor for truth. John comes to point people to truth. Now, in John's day, there was a clash of worldviews that existed in the same space at the same time. The Greco-Roman worldview and the Hebraic worldview. And both had different ideas of what truth was or what truth meant. For the Greeks, for the Romans, truth was a set of facts based on logic. Truth was an intellectual ascent led by the philosophers of the day. But for the Hebrews, the idea of truth was very different. Truth was more a reference to faithfulness than it was to a set of ideas. So Jesus comes, flip a few pages in the Gospel of John to chapter 14, and Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, Jesus wasn't simply saying, I am the right set of ideas. No, Jesus says, I'm coming as the full representation and faithfulness of God. You flip a few more pages to John chapter 18. Jesus is standing before Pilate shortly before he's crucified. Pilate accuses Jesus of being a king. And Jesus says, you're a king. You say I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world was to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And then Pilate asks that question. A question that we've been asking for thousands and thousands of years. What is truth? What is it? Well, Jesus seems to say that truth is a person. That he himself is the ultimate self-disclosure of God to man. And he came in a bit of a surprising way. For a while I was... 
watching this television show uh, called The Masked Singer. Have you ever seen The Masked Singer? If you haven't, The Masked Singer is, well, what the name says, it's about a singer who wears a mask. And the whole point of this TV show is that there's this set of singers and they're in costumes, but they're a famous person or like a famously person. Usually they've been washed up for a while and this is kind of their big entrance into the world. But they're wearing a mask and their voice is distorted when they talk and they come out and they sing a song and there's a panel of celebrity judges that is supposed to try and guess who's behind the mask and they never get it right. But when a contestant is voted off, they then have to take their mask off and reveal who they actually are. And it's always surprising because no one can get it, even from the clues they're given. It's this big surprise. So so when Jesus comes and takes off the mask of who people believed God was, there was quite a surprise because Jesus came in such a profound and grace-filled way that people weren't expecting it. Jesus comes as truth personified. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among people. That phrase dwelling could and also should be translated as tabernacle, that the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. Because see, John, John was Jewish. And so as John is writing, a lot of his writing points back to the stories of the Old Testament. In this particular case, the word tabernacled was a reference to Exodus chapter 33. In Exodus chapter 33, we read the story of God's chosen people wandering in the desert. While they're in the desert, they set up a tent called the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. It was the place where Moses would go to meet with God where God's presence would dwell with men for a moment. Moses specifically. Moses would receive instruction from God and Moses would come out and tell the people what it was that God said. It was a, a transportable tent. But, but now, now God has come to meet with his people in a new way, in a more personable way. Not only is God among the people, but God becomes one of the people in the most humble and servant-like of ways. Oh, but we've come a long way since the time of Jesus. Historically, there has been a drift amongst religion and Christianity in particular. Over and over through history, we see Christian leaders and churches and institutions vying for power and using religion to lord overs, lord over others. And what you notice in human history is that every time the Christian church chooses to align itself with power, something bad happens. Corruption always seems to seep in. When I first came to faith in Christ, the church that I attended, it was a good church. I think the pastors were, were good people, but they, they did this thing that I always thought was odd. During the worship gathering every Sunday morning, all of the pastors would sit on the stage in chairs that kind of looked like little thrones. And 
I'm like, oh, there's the pastors on their thrones again. And it always kind of bothered me a little bit because it just made me feel as though my pastor was above me. Not not one of us, but but above me. And so I, I said to myself, when I go into ministry, because I knew I was going to do that, like, I'm not going to sit up there. I'm, I'm, I'm not, the only reason I'm elevated here is because I'm 5'9 and you never see me. But, but I mean, that's really, that's really it. Every time we begin to elevate ourselves religiously above others, it is the exact opposite of the way that Jesus reveals himself. Jesus comes as one of us, humble, graceful, and good. Verse 14, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Now again, John here is taking us back to the Exodus. In Exodus chapter 34, there's a story of Moses asking God if he will reveal his face to Moses. And God says to Moses, I can't reveal my face, you can't see my glory, because no one can see my face and live. He said, however, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. And I'll allow my glory to pass by you. And I'll let you sense my presence, but no one can see my face and live. And so that's what happens. In Exodus 34, verse 5, we read, And the Lord passes by, and the Lord passes by declaring his name. And this is what he says. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Those two words, love and faithfulness, hesed and demeth, are the same two words that we get in the Greek language for grace and truth. So when the scriptures say that Jesus comes full of grace, he's also meaning full of love. And when the scripture says he comes full of truth, it is a reference to God's faithfulness, not simply a set of ideals. It's kind of like this. If, if I were to say to you, I've always been true to my wife. I'm not simply saying, well, I've never lied to my wife. I've always told the truth. What that means is I've never betrayed her. I've always been faithful. So Jesus comes full of grace and truth, full of love and faithfulness. The theologian D.A. Carson writes these words about this text. This pair of expressions, grace and truth, occurs again and again in the Old Testament. The two words that John uses, full of grace and truth, are his ways of summing up the same ideas. The glory revealed to Moses when the Lord passed in front of him and sounded his name, displaying that divine goodness characterized by the words grace and truth, was the very same glory John and his friends saw in the word made flesh. So when we approach the Bible and we say we're reading the Bible with truth and as truth, and we're simply referring to a set of ideological doctrines, then we're reading the Bible more Greco-Roman than we are Hebrew. Because when the Hebrews read the Bible, 
They're not simply looking for intellectual truth. They're looking for God's faithfulness. So could it be then that truth is not something that we tell, but something that we bear witness true to? Could it be truth is not something that's heard, but something that is seen? There's a story in John chapter 9. It's a story of Jesus healing a blind man. Jesus and his disciples encounter this blind man, and the disciples ask an interesting question. They say to Jesus, Jesus, was this man born blind because of his own sins or because of the sins of his parents? And Jesus said, well, neither. He was born blind so that the the glory of God might be displayed. Then the scriptures say Jesus kneels down onto the ground, spits in the dirt, mixes it up, makes some mud, wipes it on the man's eyes, and he is miraculously healed and he can see. Which does seem like a rather gross way to do it, if you ask me, until you understand why he did it the way that he did. See, when Jesus performed this miracle, the Pharisees were furious. They were livid. And the reason they were livid was because when Jesus knelt down on the ground and made mud with his spit, he was performing work. And the day that he performed this work was on the Sabbath. Oh, it was a no-no. Jews did not work on the Sabbath. You could not call yourself a faithful Jew and work on the Sabbath. How dare he do it? But that's what Jesus did. Oh, he made him so mad. Jesus was always breaking the rules. So the Pharisees come to this blind man, not astonished that all of a sudden a guy who was previously blind had his full sight. That wasn't important to them. What was important to them that was Jesus was a sinner because clearly only sinners work on the Sabbath. And so they say to the blind man, tell the truth that this man who healed you is a sinner. And this is the blind man's response. Look, guys, my summary. Look, guys, whether this fellow is a sinner or not, I don't, I don't know. I have no idea who he is. There's only one thing I know, only one thing I know to be true, and only one thing I can bear witness to. I once was blind, but now I see. I once was blind, but now I see. We we live in a time of, well, in many ways, religious chaos. There are so many divisions, so many ideals about what true and proper faith expression is, much like the times in which Jesus lived. Oh, I get all asked all kinds of questions, and I do my very best to be a faithful pastor. But my truth is, the only thing I can really bear witness to for myself is that once I was blind, and now I see. Once I lived in a very dark place, I lived in a place of, of anxiety and depression and immorality and hopelessness and lifelessness, asking the question, why do I even exist? And then I encounter this man named Jesus. And I don't fully know what happened. But what I know to be true is once I was blind, 
And now I see. So what then does it mean for us to live in truth? Well, I believe it means in all of life to bear witness to the faithfulness of God. And bearing witness to the faithfulness of God sometimes requires us to put aside our agendas and point people to Jesus. Living in truth means to live thoughtfully, to thoughtfully embody who Jesus is. I just wonder, in the midst of our reactivity, are we losing the ability to be thoughtful in our words, in our actions? Right around this time of year, I always hear someone say to me, you know, Pastor Mike, I was in a store or wherever, and I was checking out, and the cashier said to me, happy holidays, and I said, Merry Christmas! as if we were somehow being a light. I just don't think that's how Jesus would have done it. Jesus had this incredible knack for meeting people exactly where they were. Oh, he loved them too much to leave them there, but he loved people exactly as they were. There's another story in the Gospels of Jesus sitting with a woman at a well And it's, again, another experience of Jesus not following the rules because Jesus broke two big ones on this day. Not only did he sit alone at a well with a woman, but he sat alone at a well with a Samaritan woman, two things Jewish men would have never done. And he thoughtfully entered into her story with humility and understanding. If we're going to bear witness to the truth, requires us to have at least a small semblance of understanding of what it is that we believe. An understanding of what the scriptures are actually saying to us. Because we make so many assumptions without actually investigating for ourselves. I mean, am I faithfully living the scriptures or am I simply regurgitating what I hear others say? Because we do it all the time. We, we are constantly regurgitating things that we think to be true, but we never investigate for ourselves. I mean, years ago, uh, I think we were still in the other building, I'd, I'd given a sermon and I, I referenced a book. So I like to read. I read a lot of books. And someone approached me after the, the service and said, I can't believe you referenced that book. And I said, oh, yeah, why is that? Well, there's all these, these bad things in it. And I said, oh, really, have you read it? And I said, no. And I said, then how do you know? Well, someone online said... Someone online can say anything. If you're going to be critical, don't be lazy about it. Right? <laughs> if I'm going to point people to Christ, point people to truth, I, I also have to live the morals and ethics that I say I believe well before I point out where someone else is not living the morals and ethics that I say that they should. Oh no, my job is simply to point people to Jesus. Sometimes we confuse our job with the job of the Holy Spirit. I can't change a human heart. All I can do is bear witness to the grace and truth of Christ. This weekend, maybe you're here or watching online, and you can't point people to Jesus because you've never received him for yourself. John goes on to write, Chapter 1, verse 12. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That phrase receive simply means to take hold of something 
and give all of your life to it, full access. So maybe this Christmas season, the greatest gift that you can receive is the gift of Christ for yourself. Oh, there's no magical formula to it. It's simply opening yourself up to him, declaring Jesus as Lord and living in a way that bears witness to the transformation you experienced. Much like the blind man who said, I once was blind, but now I see. And for the rest of us, maybe the greatest gift we can offer this Christmas season is simply pointing people to Jesus. Not our opinions, not our politics, not our personal agendas, but pointing people to Jesus. This morning, oh God, I feel like I've said a lot of words to convey a very simple message. Much like John the Baptist came to bear witness to the light, our privilege and responsibility is to simply bear witness to you. To live a transformed life in alignment with what I've experienced. I can't even imagine the joy that the blind man experienced that day. When he said to those religious leaders, I once was blind, but now I see. Oh, I can imagine. Lord, would you open our eyes and help us see in a new way the marvelous light of your glorious presence. And as we go out into our week, Maybe bear witness to the light. Maybe point people to Jesus. Amen.